Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word this morning, as we look at what has been superintended at the hand of Matthew, one of your apostles, by the inspiration of your spirit, as we hear your word, you speaking, Father, we pray that we would come to understand better what it is that you're saying here, that our minds and hearts would become focused on who you are as our triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would worship you and think about you and delight in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during a recent live question and answer Q&A that, had, that happened on Facebook, a local megachurch pastor denied the Trinity and taught what was known or what is known as modalism. Modalists will affirm one God. They will say there is one God. They will say that the Father... Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. But they deny, here's what they deny, they deny that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. Rather, they see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three historical modes or manifestations of revelation of the one God. So God first reveals himself historically as Father, and then he reveals himself historically as Son. And then he reveals himself historically as Holy Spirit. So he's Father in the Old Testament. He's Son in the Incarnation. And he's Spirit at Pentecost. But he is not three in one. He is one who shows up in three modes. Now based upon previous conversations and emails with this pastor... I, I was not surprised by his belief. I had a conversation with him nearly 15 years ago or more. 
At which time I thought to myself, surely he doesn't mean what he just said when I asked him about the Trinity, and he said, I don't see it anywhere in the Bible. I thought, surely he didn't say that, so I thought he was maybe being coy with me or funny. But later on, through email conversations, came to realize that this is, in fact, what he believes. And then, when he did this live Q&A, it was confirmed once again. So it didn't surprise me he taught that. What did surprise me, what sort of floored me, was that, that very few people seemed to care. I mean, I met with leaders at some of the Christian institutions in town who, who actually, actually asked me, what difference does it make? If people love Jesus, if people love Jesus, they're saved, right? So, so why make such a big deal out of the Trinity? And folks, I, I hear this often. There is an assumption out there it's an assumption that if you are sincere in your love for Jesus, then it does not matter what you think about doctrines like the Trinity. It just doesn't matter. We live in a day when many Christians believe that their religious experience, their personal zeal, and their personal encounter with God is what is central to the Christian faith. When we think about God, or excuse me, what we think about God is less important than what we think we experienced. Never, never mind the fact that Paul says, you know, in Romans 10.1 as he talks about the Jews, that my heart's desire and prayer for my brothers according to the flesh is that they may be saved. For they have a zeal for God. They're zealous for God. But not according to knowledge. So Paul says because they don't know the true God, they're not saved, regardless of how zealous they are for what they call God. And that's possible because your zeal is not according to, listen, knowledge, doctrine, the teaching that we find in Scripture. But here's the thing. In our day, knowledge, thinking, doctrine are really seen as cold ideas of Know-it-all Pharisees. Did you hear me? If you believe doctrine's important, then you're probably cold, maybe spiritually dead, and you're definitely a Pharisee. The real action, the real stuff of the Christian life is my personal experience with God. That's our contemporary belief. But folks, the Bible never, I want you to hear this, the Bible never teaches that. Jesus, now I, I want you to please hear me, Jesus never rebukes the Pharisees for being too doctrinal. That's a belief people have, that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for being too biblical and too right on in their doctrine. Never rebukes them for that. In fact, if you go read Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees over and over and over again, it's about the fact that the Pharisees have traded out the true doctrine, the word of God, for their own traditions and experiences. He rebukes them for bad doctrine. In other words, one of their problems, anyways, is bad doctrine. It's not their only problem. They have bad hearts. He rebukes them for that too. If you create another God in your mind, even if you call that new God by the name of the biblical God, that God you create in your mind is still an idol, no matter what you name him. 
Remember Israel at Mount Sinai? You guys familiar with the Exodus? Israel's at Mount Sinai. They've been brought out of Egypt. Yahweh has redeemed them and brought them out. The creator of heaven and earth, the God of their fathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, sent them Moses and brought them out of Egypt to the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and the wandering through the wilderness and conquering armies that came against them and brings them to Mount Sinai and Moses and Joshua and Caleb. They go up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron, his brother, the high priest, is down there, and the people and Aaron decide together to create a golden calf, an idol. So while Moses is receiving the law, while he's receiving the law, the first commandment which says, you shall have no other gods before me, the second commandment which says, you shall make no graven images, while he's receiving that, the Israelites are down in the camp violating that law. And what's interesting is, as they're violating it, they're declaring, here are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. And they go on, actually, Aaron says, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to Yahweh. Now, hear what they just did. Hear what they just did. They just built an idol and called it by the name of the covenantal Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. The Lord doesn't look down and go, well, that's a really nice golden calf. And at least you're calling it by my name. And when you're using my name, it doesn't really matter to me that it, do, it doesn't mean what it means in the Bible, just as long as you feel sincere about whatever you think it means. They built an idol, a golden calf, a false god, and they named it by the name of the Lord. And they worshipped it. To carry this further, Jesus is deeply concerned that you get him right. Any old idea about Jesus is not sufficient. Jesus believed that you must, hear this, it was necessary that you get him right. You can see that right off in the book of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, look there. We're gonna look at verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, well, that's sufficient as long as they like me a lot. Nope. As long as they have a deep religious experience in which they suggest they love me by the name Jesus, I don't care what they think I am. Is that what he says? But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. From Genesis 3.15 all the way through, you're him, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed, if you will, of Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. You're the one being promised. You're the Christ. The son, look at the next descriptor, the son of the living God. Not the son of the dead gods that the pagans worship, but the son of the only God who is, the one who is alive, the one who is life in himself and who gives life to all else. You're his son, his eternal son. And Jesus answered him, 
Simon, that's more than most people need to know. <laughs> Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Notice that Jesus is intensely interested in them getting him right. Loving the wrong Jesus, no matter how sincere, is not saving. Further, Peter is blessed, listen to what it says, blessed by the Father to know the right Jesus. It is the Father's blessing to him. Jesus isn't saying, blessed are you, Simon Peter, because you figured out who the right Jesus is. He's saying, the blessing you have, Simon Peter, is that you know who the true Jesus is because the Father has revealed him to you. You don't have a false Christ. You have the right one. And your blessing is you know him. You know him. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, and he is the eternal son of the living God, and Peter knows that because the Father blessed him with eyes to see with ears to hear. Jesus is not the Father. He was never the Father. Did you hear that? Never. He is eternally the Son. And how does Peter know this? Because my Father in heaven revealed it to you. Please don't miss this. The Jesus invented by flesh and blood, the Jesus created by the human mind and imagination is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus created by your religious experience. The Jesus created by your own rationality is not the Jesus of the Bible, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of the living God. That Jesus is a false Jesus, the one you've created in your own mind. So he's saying, flesh and blood, don't figure out who I am. The Father reveals that to you. The only true Jesus is the one revealed by the Father in Holy Scripture. Now first, revealed by the Father in his actual incarnation. But for us, we're reading about his incarnation and life and death in the Scripture. And the Father reveals Jesus, listen to this, the Father reveals Jesus by the working of the Holy Spirit. Look look at 1 Corinthians. Keep your hand there in Matthew. Look at 1 Corinthians in chapter 2. 1 Corinthians in chapter 2. And verse 12. Now we have not received, we have received not the spirit of the world. In other words, the reason we have spiritual knowledge about Christ and are saved is not because we've received the spirit of the world. It's not because we've come up with man's way of thinking about these things. Not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. Hear that? Hear the contrast. Human wisdom, human imagination, personal religious experience versus what? But taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, man in and of himself, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able, 
not capable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. He does that through his word. All scripture is theopneustos. It's all God, theos, pneustos, breathed. It's all breathed out by the Spirit. And it's useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Spirit speaks in and through the Word. And He opens your eyes and your ears to see and believe the truth. He is the one through whom the Father reveals the Son. So the Father reveals the Son by the Spirit, and it's only that Jesus who saves. The Jesus of the Bible saves. The Jesus of your private experience is an idol, a false god. So here's the question that's immediately begged. What does getting Jesus right have to do with getting the Trinity right? And what does getting the Trinity right have to do with getting Jesus right? I've argued last week, which you can go back and listen to if you haven't heard it, that Trinitarianism is Christianity. Did you hear that? I'm going to tell it to you every week. Trinitarianism is Christianity. Christianity is Trinitarianism. Listen to what 19th century theologian William G.T. Shedd wrote. The doctrine of the Trinity is the most immense of all the doctrines of religion. It is the foundation of theology. Christianity in the last analysis is Trinitarianism. Take out of the New Testament the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and there is no God left. Or listen to how the Apostle Paul, more importantly, says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. Now, I'm just, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Verse 5 and 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. In other words, he's denying all these other gods. There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Notice what he just did. He just gave the Father and the Son the same common properties or substance, calling them both Lord of all things, and at the same time differentiated the Father and the Son as two distinct persons. And he said, that's the only God there is. Now, he includes the Holy Spirit in here. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And if you go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 3 in verse 18, he calls the Holy Spirit the Lord. Paul doesn't know of a God who's not triune. He's never heard of that God. And any God who claims to be God who's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, one substance or being, in Paul's mind is a so-called false God. So why do I argue that you must get the Trinity right to get Jesus right? Because we're arguing that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of the Father. That is the Jesus of Scripture. There is no other. He is the one who is God. And he is the one who is eternally the Son of the Father. Please hear that twofold description I just gave you. It's at the heart of Trinitarianism. This twofold description constitutes the basis for Trinitarianism. What do I mean? 
I want you to hear this because I'm going to keep driving this every week. First, the persons of the Father and the Son and the Spirit share common properties. Did you hear that? They share common properties. They are one substance. Second, the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have distinct personal properties, distinct personal relations. They are three persons. They are one God, for God is one, and him alone you shall worship. Yet they have distinct personal relations while sharing the same substance. The Father is God and is eternally the Father of the Son. He eternally begets the Son and breathes out the Spirit. The Son is God and is eternally the Son of the Father. He is eternally begotten, not made, And with the Father, he breathes out the Spirit. The Spirit of God is eternally spirated or breathed out by the Father. That's what spiration means. Breathed out by the Father and the Son. And what we're saying is that God is one being and three eternally distinct persons. I know I'm going to push your minds, and I'm okay with that. If you don't get to the point where your head's going to pop, then you're not getting the sermon at all. You're clearly not understanding that God is incomprehensible. So hang with me. The claim I am making is that we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sharing the same substance. They have the same common properties, is the way theologians will talk about it. And they each have distinct personal relations. And we can see all of that in the missions of the Son and the Spirit recorded in the New Testament which is what I'm going to be going through as I go through these New Testament books. I'm going to show you the mission of the Son and his incarnation and how it shows us in his mission that he has the same substance of the Father and yet different personal relations. He's the Son who is eternally begotten. He's not the Father who eternally begets. And then I'm going to show you the mission of the Holy Spirit as he's poured out at Pentecost and beyond. He's the Spirit who's spirated or breathed out by the Father and the Son. He doesn't beget anyone. He is not eternally begotten. He is the one who eternally breathes out, is breathed out, sorry, by the Father and the Son. So I'm going to show you that as we go through these books. So can the idea that the persons share common properties of the same substance as one God be maintained? See, I'm making a claim. I need to maintain it. And can the idea that the persons eternally hold distinct personal properties or relations as three distinct persons, can that also be maintained? That's what I'm setting out to establish in this series. Understand those two things. They're foreign words for you. But it's all you really need to get your mind around, ultimately. Can I establish that there's one God, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each share that one substance? They aren't parts of that one substance. It's not like a little pie you cut into three pieces. They each share the whole. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Can I demonstrate that that's true? And at the same time, can I demonstrate from Scripture that each of those three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, are distinct persons? They have distinct personal relations. That's the burden of Trinitarianism. And the resounding answer I want to give you is yes, I can show that. I started showing it last week. I will continue to show it today and today from Matthew. So I want to begin by laying the groundwork for that in Matthew 11. Look at Matthew 11, 25 again. You're going to be like, this is the longest introduction ever. 
Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now let me stop and break this down. At that time, at what time? At the time that he just announced a woe to unrepentant cities. He had just pronounced in the previous verse, look at verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? It will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable or tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared. What's the connection here? Jesus is saying, I've been doing all these mighty works demonstrating that I am the Lord and Savior, demonstrating that I am the Messiah and the Son of the living God. I've been doing all these mighty works, and yet you refuse to recognize me for who I am. You refuse, and you will be judged. And then he stops, and at that time Jesus declared, now this is an odd response, isn't it? I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In other words, Jesus stops and thanks the Father that the Father did not reveal it to those cities. Now, I don't have time to get into the doctrine of election today. You'll have to work that out some other time. All I want to get into here is how Jesus addresses the Father. I thank you, Father. Notice the first description Who does he thank? The Father. He addresses God by this personal relation. God is his Father. He's not just addressing him Father like the Father was called the Father of the Israelite nation. He actually goes on later to say, my Father. In other words, I have a direct personal relation with this person. He's praying to him. That makes no sense if they are two historical manifestations of the same person. You understand that? He's praying to his father as the son. I thank you, father. Now look what he goes on to call him. Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, I thank you, father. And now he's going to give you a descriptor about the father. He is the Lord over all. He is God. He is the one, who, one God who created all things. He is the one whom in the Old Testament we call Yahweh, our covenant Lord, Adonai, the God of the Old Testament. He is God. So in his personal relation, Jesus addresses him as Father. That's his personal relation. I'm your son. I thank you, Father. And in his being or substance, he is creator and sovereign Lord of all. Now look at what Jesus thanks the Father for, verse 25 to 26. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, for such was your gracious 
will. He has hidden the truth from some and revealed the truth to others according to his gracious will or good pleasure. Paul picks up that same language in Ephesians chapter 1. So Jesus, in the face of being rejected, knows and gives thanks for the fact that the Father is the revealer. Now, if you remember, Jesus already acknowledged this in Matthew 16, 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven, revealed this to you. Why is Peter blessed? Because the Father chose to reveal the truth to him. He didn't reveal it to Chorazin and Bethsaida. He didn't reveal it to Capernaum, but he revealed it to Peter. He sent the Spirit to open Peter's eyes, to give life to Peter's dead soul. He gave him ears to hear. The Father does not reveal this to those who are clever enough to figure it out on their own. Now look at Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27. He reveals it to whom he will, to, according to his gracious will. Now look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now notice this. The Father and the Son share common properties. They are both Lord of heaven and earth. The Father is addressed as Lord of heaven and earth, and then the Son says, all things have been handed over to me. Now, now what's he referring to? Well, in the previous passage, he's talking about his mighty works, his control and sovereign power over heaven and earth. He heals diseases. He casts out demons. He stills storms. He is the one who has authority over heaven and earth. You don't believe that? Go to Matthew 28 and verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. In other words, the Father and the Son are both Lord of heaven and earth. They share that common property, if you will. Lord of heaven and earth. They share the same substance. But their persons, father and son, are relationally distinct. The father gives to the son. The son receives the gift from the father. But look what else they share. Look again at Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. Not only do they share lordship of heaven and earth, look at what it says. And no one knows the son except the Father. In other words, the only one who knows the Son is the Father. That's important in order because what he's just been arguing is the reason Bethsaida and Capernaum and etc. don't know him is because the Father has not been pleased to reveal him to them. Because why does the Father have to be pleased to reveal the Son to you? Because the Father is the only one who knows the Son. And how does he reveal the Son to you? By the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's arguing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 through the preaching of the Word. So, so listen to what he's saying. The Father, you, no one knows the Son. That's an intimate knowing. Adam left his father and mother, cleaved to his wife. The two became one flesh, and he knew her. That's an analogy. It's pointing to something much greater than itself. The Father and the Son know one another because they are one. And no one, look what they share. And no one knows the Father except the Son. In other words, the only one who knows the Son is the Father. The only one who knows the Father is the Son. They share in common their divine knowing of one another. Now, now look what it goes on to say further. And to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
So the father is thanked in verse 25 for being the revealer of the son, right? And the son, we are told, is the revealer of the father in verse 27. Notice the congruity here. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. All things have been given into my, the Son's hands. I have authority over all of heaven and earth. I'm the Lord of heaven and earth too. Thank you, Father, because you're the one who reveals these things to little children. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. They share common properties. They know each other because they are eternally father and son. They know each other because they're one being, one substance, one God. The same thing is said of the Spirit in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 2, 10, 11. I want you to hear this again. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now listen to what he says. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God, as the third person of the Trinity, shares the common substance. No one knows your thoughts except you, right? No one knows the thoughts of the Father except the Son. No one knows the thoughts of the Son except the Father. No one knows the thoughts of the Father and the Son or the Spirit except the Spirit. You guys you follow? They share one substance, but they're three persons. I know you go just, right? It's okay. You might object that I've smuggled the Holy Spirit into Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 to 27. You might say, hey, listen, I don't see the Holy Spirit in Matthew 20, 11, 25 to 27, but I want to argue that Matthew implicitly assumes the Spirit here. Now, why, why would I say that? Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And verse 21 In that same hour, in that same hour, he rejoiced. Now, notice who Jesus rejoices in, in the Holy Spirit. Rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Assume the Spirit's there. So clearly, Jesus is, in thanking the Father, we're told, is at the same time rejoicing in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Matthew knows and assumes that. But it's a case I am wanting to make from Matthew. In doing so, it's important that we affirm as Christians that Scripture interprets Scripture. Do you hear that? One of the most important principles in Bible study methods are hermeneutics. One of those important principles is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So I have and will unashamedly appeal to a broader range of Scripture than just Matthew because we believe that all of these 66 books are inspired by the same God. And therefore, they have a unified message. They're non-contradictory. So we always unashamedly say that Scripture interprets Scripture. 
And here's the case that I'm making. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. I said this to you multiple times, but I want you to hear it again. The Father and the Son and the Spirit first share common properties, one substance or being. Second, they share those common properties, one substance or being, while simultaneously holding distinct personal relations. These are my two burdens, to show you the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share the same substance or common properties and hold distinct personal relations at the same time. So, so let me look at the first burden quickly in an overview through Matthew. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit share common properties. They are one God. In other words, if what I showed you last week in Matthew 28 and what I showed you this week so far in Matthew 16 and 11 isn't enough, I just will show you more in Matthew, okay? I don't want to leave Matthew first. I want you to see that this one apostle of Jesus knew this. And then we'll move next week to Mark, see that he knew it too. But look what he says. Um, or let, let's look at how Matthew starts. The Gospel of Matthew, I think, to understand the Gospel of Matthew, to understand that this is, this is a book which is set on telling you that Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic promises of the Old Testament Lord. Israel believed in one God, maker of heaven and earth, Lord of heaven and earth. He was God. There was no other. Israel's confession is the Lord our God, the Hebrew Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they believe the Lord is with them. He's with them. He's not only the transcendent God who creates the heaven and earth, who is not himself a creature, but the creator. He's not only transcendent, but he is also present with his people. He's with them. He's the God who is present with them. And look at how Matthew starts the gospel. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then he goes into a genealogy, and he's anchoring you in Old Testament history, saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and 22, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, and Psalm 110, and Psalm 2, and we could go on and on. He's the fulfillment of these promises. And it's anchoring the whole book of Matthew in that Old Testament set of promises now let's look at the birth of Christ. Go down to verse 18. Verse 18, chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, or Jesus Messiah, which is Christ, just the Greek word for that title, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, in other words, before they knew each other, you all know what that is. Parents, you can explain it to your kids at home. Before they came together, she was found to be with child, now catch this, from the Holy Spirit. Two distinct persons, aren't there? Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Son and the Holy Spirit. But he's the Son of the Father, so the third person is assumed. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus just means the Lord saves. 
All this took place to fulfill, now catch this from Isaiah, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Which God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Jesus is God with us. Now, this brackets the whole book of Matthew, this concept that Jesus is actually the incarnation of the Son of God with us. How do I know that? Because how does the Great Commission end? Jesus says, remember, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And surely I am what? With you always. That's the bracket, the inclusio around the book of Matthew. Inclusio is a Hebrew literary device. It's like bookends. You know, if you go to a, a shelf, if you have a lot of books, if you're a reader, some of you might have one shelf of books or maybe one book, but some of you might have bookshelves. On your bookshelves, you might have bookends. And in this set, you might put your Old Testament books. And in this set, you might put your New Testament books. In this set, you might put your systematic theology. In this set, you might put your historical theology. And I know, that's my bookcases. But anyway, so as you're doing that, those bookends are bracketing a certain, if you will, theme, subject. And an inclusio is a Hebrew literary device that bookends or brackets a subject. In other words, the Gospel of Matthew is bookended by the fact that Jesus is Yahweh with us. He is the covenant of Lord with us. And how, that's how Matthew begins. That's how Matthew ends. Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament who is with his people. He is their covenant Lord and God, yet he is the Son of the Father, and the Father is the covenant Lord and God of Israel. And the Spirit of God is also the one who's involved in his incarnation, to which you ought to say the only thing we have left with regard to words to even discuss this is some kind of wild stammering and stuttering. Because at the best, all I can do, the best all I can do to sum up who God is, one and three, is, is going to sound like stuttering on an eternal scale. Now look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to do what? Worship him. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Jesus is worshiped. No one's rebuked for this. The wise men are being commended here for worshiping Jesus. Yet God only shall you worship. When Jesus walks on water and calms the storm, you guys remember this? The disciples were in the boat. Storm hits, Jesus comes up walking on the water. They're freaked out. He's, he eventually tells the storm to cease. Here's, here's what the disciples do. It says in Matthew, they worshiped him. And then it says this. Those in the boat worshiped him. Matthew 14, Worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. See, they accepted that as a divine title. Son of the Father. They worship. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for that worship. 
Matthew 28, 17, the disciples meet him on the mountain and some of the disciples worship him. Jesus never rebukes the worship of himself. The apostle Matthew assumes they should be. Yet, in Matthew 4, 10, Jesus himself quotes, while he's being tempted by Satan, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 and says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus believes himself to be the Lord your God, whom only you shall serve. In Matthew, Jesus forgives sins. He calms storms. He heals diseases. He cats out demons, and he receives worship. Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. All of this is the activity and the authority of the Lord our God, yet it is also the activity and the authority of Jesus, and we see all these same activities and authority with the Holy Spirit. He's involved with the incarnation of Jesus, the anointing and empowering of Jesus for ministry, the leading of Jesus, the revealing of the Father and the Son, and he's also called the Lord in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Further, and perhaps most importantly, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all placed under one name in which we are baptized. If you want more on that, you can look last week. So they share common properties. They share the same substance. They're all the Lord. Yet they also have distinct personal properties or relations in much of Matthew. Which leads to the second point I was making again and again and again. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit hold distinct personal relations. They are distinct persons. Now by persons, I'm going to get into this more in the future. We don't mean they're each a center of consciousness, like they each have their own mind and will and, and heart, etc. like three beings. They're one being, three persons. How do you describe their personal relations? You just sort of stop there. Do you hear me? One being, three personal relations. What does that mean? One being, three personal relations. Can you explain that to me? One being... Three eternally distinct personal relations. Equal in power and glory? How about that? Because they're one being. Anything else you want to add? Not the same persons. They're three distinct persons. In the birth narrative in Matthew 1, we see both the Son and the Spirit as two distinct persons. In the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, we see the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We see the Son in the water being baptized and the Holy Spirit descending on him as a dove. We see all three distinct persons in one glorious theophany. In the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. As the Son is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan who attempts to cause the Son to be unfaithful to the Father. Jesus, throughout Matthew, refers to the Father as my Father as he prays to him and appeals to him. This is two distinct personal relations together. Now look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. So as Jesus tells you to fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell and not fear the one who can only kill the body. He goes on to say this in verse 31, oh, sorry, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. Now there's more to say about this than I'm going to say, but not less to say about than what I'm going to say. And here's what I'm going to say. The Father and the Son are differentiated again, and yet they're equated with one another. To deny one is to deny, to deny them both. To confess one is to confess them both. If you deny one, 
you will not be able to come to the other. You can only come to the Father through the Son. Now look at Matthew 12, 28. As Jesus is talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the casting out demons, verse, chapter 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that's got a lot of deep, rich Old Testament meaning I don't have time to get into. Here's the point I want to drive at. Jesus gives credit for his work to the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? Gives credit for his work to the Holy Spirit. They are distinct, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet they share the same common properties of God. We see that throughout Matthew as we are driven to the great baptismal confession where we are baptized in the name, singular, of the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's what I'm driving at. Hero Christian, the Lord is one and three, three and one, and he is God. And this Jesus, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, himself the Lord of heaven and earth, the eternal Son of the Father, clothed in humanity, this Jesus alone saves. Did you hear that? No other Jesus saves. No one comes to the Father but through him. The Jesus of your religious experience does not bring you to the Father. If it's your religious experience alone, if it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Do you hear that? The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who reveals and is the second person of our Trinitarian Lord, he is the only way to the Father. And what do you do with all this? What's your application? Look back at Matthew 11 and verse 28 again. Or verse 28, which I read but haven't come back to. Come to me. This Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Lord of, the hev of heaven and earth, who is the eternal Son of the eternal Father, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now the connection here is fascinating. The burden of the law and the extra regulations placed on top of it by the religious leaders of the day were wearying and hard on people. And Israel should have always known that the presence of the covenant Lord is what gave them rest. They should have always known that. Why? Because they're told in Exodus 33, 14, after the giving of the law, that the Lord's presence, hear this, the Lord's presence is their rest. Exodus 33, 14. The presence of Yahweh with them is their rest. What is Jesus named? God with us. That's why he's our rest. And here in this text, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is our rest. They could work their fingers to the bone and never know the Lord or be reconciled to the Father. They needed to be yoked to Christ. They needed to learn from him. They could never know the Father apart from Jesus Learning from Jesus means knowing him, folks. It means the Lord has revealed the truth to you. You cannot, you do not, I should say, have to grasp for that kind of knowledge. In fact, you cannot grasp for it. You receive it, and you rest in him and his work. Faith in Christ, listen to what this is, because you need to get a definition of what faith is to understand what we're talking about here. Faith in Christ is receiving him and resting in him. Now, as a believer, what is your central Christian work? 
to contemplate our triune Lord. Did you hear that? To think, to study. John Owen says, to eye the Puritan, to eye him, to look at him. But if I say to eye, it sounds like I'm a pirate, so I don't say that, right? <laughs> to eye him, to look at him, to look long at him. Your central Christian work is, as I think the Puritan Owen said or put it, to commune with the Father in his love for you, in the Son, in his purchased grace for you, and in the Spirit, in his divine assistance to you. This makes following him a joy, a delight, and never a burden. We submit to the revelation of God in Scripture rather than the traditions of men or our own experience or the rationality of our own minds. Rather, we see the, the God who is the Father, who is the Son, and who is the Holy Spirit. This is the one God who is three persons revealed in the Holy Scriptures. He alone is God. There is no other so let us rest in him and rejoice in him. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would help us to, in some small way, to the degree that we as finite, fallen creatures are able to help us understand the truth that you have revealed about yourself as our triune Lord, one God, three distinct persons, equal in power and glory. Help us to understand that to the degree that we can. Help us to clothe our, clothe, excuse me, close our mouths where Scripture is silent. Help us to be comfortable with the recognition that at best we are stammering through trying to in any way describe you to worship you and delight in you and know that your son Jesus is our rest. May we look to him. May you be exalted, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.